video platforms that it streams on. So, right. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So um, we are live and welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs and tonight we have Chris Date on with us from Rethinking Hell. We're going to talk about hell tonight and uh, just a few of the different views on hell and in particular his view. I'm just going to kind of uh, go through an introduction on the different views of hell. We're going to talk about that and uh, then we're going to get into um, particularly just tossing some questions to Chris, uh, rapid fire, or uh, really uh, the point is to kind of take our time and going through it, but um, we'll get through as many questions as we can. So yeah, just stay tuned and we'll be right back. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Awesome. So, uh, once again, welcome back to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you guys, for those of you who are still joining in live. Uh, and I'm trying to get organized here a little bit. I want to take just a second um, to give an introduction to uh, Chris and to get him on the screen and then to... Um, get into it. So let me get Chris on the screen here and we'll get going. Hey, I can, I've got you on. So, hey, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Um, it's good to have you. I've been looking forward to this particular conversation for a long time. Uh, so thank you again for coming on and being willing to talk about hell a little bit. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. So let's start with just kind of giving a brief introduction to who you are. I'm sure the majority of people uh, would already be familiar with you in this particular conversation because it seems like if anybody's talking about hell today, uh, that it, it Chris Date's going to be the guy to go to when we're talking about hell. So if you could just talk about who you are, your podcast, your YouTube channel. Um, I know you've written a couple of books on hell as well. You've got a website, a Facebook group. Um, and just kind of give us any updates on conferences and topics, just what's going on in your world right now. 
Sure, and thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, I have been a Christian for just about 20 years, was an atheist for the first 20 years of my life, and then became a Christian around the time of the birth of my first son. My wife and I were atheists at the time, and uh, I became a Christian, and then a few years later she did. Very soon after I became a Christian, I developed a appreciation for the importance of sound theology and sound exegesis of the scriptures. Um, I became extremely committed, uh, at least I think, to the authority of Scripture, and I try to follow wherever it leads. And uh, back in around 2009, I think it was, I started a personal podcast, which I haven't, I don't do anymore. It was called The Apologetics. And as part of that podcast, I would have interview guests on, some of whom I agreed with on the topic I had them on about, and other guests that I didn't agree with, but I nevertheless felt that the view they were sharing was within the pale of orthodoxy. And one such guest that I had on was a guy named Edward Fudge, who is, uh, was, he passed away a couple of years ago, he was the author of The Fire That Consumes, which is the um, seminal work on the topic that I'm here representing today. And in the process of preparing for for that interview and conducting it, I became uh, on the fence. I had previously been a firm believer in the doctrine of eternal torment in hell, never had any sort of emotional or philosophical problems with it. But uh, like I said, in the course of preparing for and conducting that interview, I found myself squarely on the fence. And over the months that followed, suffice it to say that through continued research, moderating debates, having guests that believe in eternal torment on my show, and more, I eventually became convinced of the view that I'm going to be representing here today. Um, I was invited, I think, in 2012 to join a new ministry that was starting up called uh, Rethinking Hell. So I'm not its founder, but I am sort of the most you know public face and the face of Rethinking Hell, which says uh, which doesn't say much for rethinking hell if I'm its face uh, but anyway so as part of rethinking hell um, I uh, do two things primarily. One, I do try to convince people that this is the biblical view because I've become convinced that the Bible teaches almost nothing more clearly than it does the view that I'm representing here today. Um, but when I cannot convince people of that, my hope is to be able to model uh, charitable dialogue with people with whom I disagree in the hope that I might be able to sort of elevate the discourse because too often I think Christians treat this topic as one worth dividing over when I don't think that it should be. Um, and so my hope is to convince those that I that remain convinced of eternal torment that nevertheless people who hold to my view uh, very often are doing so because they hold the scriptures in extremely high esteem and they're committed to its authority and they've just come to a different conclusions as far as what it means. So as part of that ministry, you know, we, we do a blog at RethinkingHell.com, which is also where we do a podcast. We're some 130 episodes in, I believe. Uh, we have published two books. Uh, I am the editor of both of those books. I did contribute a chapter to one of them, but I did not author those books. I'm the lead editor of both of those books. And if people want to see those books, they can just go to my Amazon uh, authors page, which I think is uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date. And they are the books Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, which is sort of a collection of past uh, essays and articles and things like that that other conditionalists and people who believe in the traditional view but are friendly toward us. Um, it, it's a compilation of those kinds of things. So it's got John Stott and John Wenham and Clark Pinnock and a number of others. 
And then the second book we published is A Consuming Passion, Essays on, the, immor, essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge. So it's what in the literature is called a festschrift, which is a, um, a book, a collection of essays in honor of somebody. And so this is almost all brand new material, much of which was presented at our very first conference. So I'll mention that now, too. Ever since 2014, we've been having annual conferences. These are not conferences that are conditionalist only. And obviously, we'll get to the point where listeners know what I mean when I refer to conditionalists. Um, but uh, yeah, we've, we've had uh, believers in the traditional view come and speak as plenary speakers, and we've had universalists at some of them as well. So we began in 2014 in Houston and then moved to Pasadena for our second conference in 2015, went abroad to London, UK in 2016, and then to Auckland, New Zealand in 2017. We returned to the US in 2018, where we had our conference in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and that was a really fascinating conference. Uh, a guy named Preston Sprinkle, who co-authored Erasing Hell with Francis Chan when he was still a believer in Eternal Torment, he came and spoke at the conference, now a firm believer in the view I'm representing. Uh, and Craig Evans from Houston Baptist University came out. None of us anticipated that Craig Evans was going to come, an extremely respected scholar, by the way, came out and gave an extremely conditionalist friendly presentation, and it would be hard to come away thinking that he believes in the doctrine of Eternal Torment. So that was really cool. And then last year in 2019 for our uh, seventh or sixth conference, we were in Enid, Oklahoma. And then this year in November 6th and 7th, which is a Friday and Saturday, the conference will be up in my neck of the woods, the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area. And if people want to learn more about that, they can go to rethinkinghellconference.com. Uh, it's going to be on apologetics. The, the theme is apologetics and the problem of hell. So we're going to be having um, Paul Copan, with whom your, reader, your viewers are probably familiar and uh, Clay Jones from Biola University and Tim Barnett from the ministry Stand to Reason, which is uh, sort of led led by Greg Kokel. All three of those speakers will come and give presentations from the position of eternal torment. All three of them hold to that view. And then I'll be the fourth speaker, the, the one speaker speaking from a different perspective. And we'll just be working together to try and um, think through how as Christians we can more effectively answer the challenge of hell in doing apologetics than perhaps past generations have done. So I'd encourage people to check that out. There is also a live streaming online registration option for 10% of the normal ticket. So if people can't make it out to Seattle, they can purchase an online registration and watch everything live as it's happening. Um, there's so much more I could say. I, I, I'll try to say one last thing, which is that I am a software engineer by trade. That's been my career my entire adult life but i've got a dream of one day teaching at the seminary uh, at a seminary um and so to that end i graduated from liberty university with a bachelor of science in religion in 2014 and then i'm i've come to fuller theological seminary not because i'm left-leaning i'm not uh, i'm extremely conservative but i didn't want to go to school somewhere where i would just be in an echo chamber being told stuff i already know or think so i came to fuller theological seminary and i'm almost done there. Once I've graduated uh, Fuller, Lord willing, my hope is to go on to do a PhD in Old Testament um, at somewhere like uh, a UK school like Cambridge or Oxford or something like that. So that's sort of uh, a bit about me. I'm also married and have four kids. And um, yeah, we could go on and on. I'll Sweet. stop there. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate it. Um, so for those of you who are viewing live, I do want to let you know that at the end, if we've got time um, I want to open it up to you all. If you would like to call in uh, with a question, you can do that. The number is 816-866-0025. 
so you should be able to call in when we get to that point and uh, take any questions. I, I actually didn't ask Chris if he'd be all right with that, um, but I, I would imagine you would be. If not, hey, don't call in. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, also, I'd like to kind of give you an idea of what tonight is going to look like. For whatever reason, um, it's it's not doing the live stream on Facebook. I know that they've kind of done some, some weird things with... Uh, um, embedding live streams. This, it's, it's not showing the live stream in Facebook. So what I had to do was take the YouTube stream and uh, post that um, into the Rethinking Hell Facebook group. Um, so if anybody is watching this live, um, you can also share that and that can help p other people to see the stream as it, as it comes in since it's not going live um, on Facebook. And that's okay. I can always post it later anyways. Um, it just won't be a Facebook stream. It'll be YouTube. So anyways, um, so let's give a real uh, brief introduction to the topic of hell and then, um, and, and then just talk about it and jump into some of the, the questions that I've got for you. Um, originally, uh, just to give you guys a background on how this conversation actually happened, um, Chris and I were interacting in the Rethinking Hell uh, Facebook group. And we, had, we were just talking about actually having a conversation about it. You said, hey, man, I'd be willing to come on and talk anytime. Um, so we scheduled it. But what I did, I actually um, started reading a lot more than I have on the topic and came up with about 50 pages worth of material and questions and stuff. So we're really not going to make a dent in that tonight. But I do want to make as much progress as we can and kind of get the high points for um, not just a surface level uh, aerial view of the conditional immortality, um, but kind of get into some of the depth of the conversation there. So anyways, let's look real briefly at what Charles Hodge has to say uh, on the subject. And he kind of breaks it down into five different categories where he says this. On this subject, the following, following opinions have been held. Number one, it is assumed that the design of punishment is reformation and that it is effective to that end. The time will therefore come when all sinful creatures, whether uh, men or angels, shall be purged from all corruption and restored to the image and favor of God. This was the doctrine of origin in the early church, uh, and other restorationists rest their hope on the ultimate salvation of all men, not on the purifying effect of suffering, but on the uh, eff efficacy of the death of Christ. If he died for all, they infer all will be saved. Number two, the second view would be others hold that future punishment is only hypothetically ever everlasting. That is, the wicked will suffer forever if they continue to sin forever. But if the spirit continues to strive with men in the world to come, or as others believe, if plenary ability belongs to the very nature of a rational creature, then we may assume that some, perhaps many, perhaps all, in the course of ages will repent and turn unto God and live. And then number three, others again teach that the sufferings of the impenitent are only relative, relatively endless. That is, it will uh, forever be true that their condition will be inferior to what it would have been had they been better men. Number four, others hold that the life promised to the righteous is immortality and that the death threatened against the wicked is the extinction of life or the cessation of conscious existence. The soul will die in the future world just as the body dies here. It ceases to act, it ceases to feel, feel it ceases to be. This death of the soul is called eternal because life is never to be restored. The punishment of the wicked is, therefore, in a sense, everlasting. It is a final and everlasting forfeiture of all good. Thus Cicero calls death 
Sempiternum Malum and Lucretius speaks of uh, a Mars Immortalis. This second death may be very painful and protracted. The finally impenitent may, and doubtless will, suffer for a long, longer or shorter, shorter period and to a less or greater degree before the final extinction of their being. And the finally impenitent may, and doubtless will, um, uh, wait, and thus there shall be a future retribution answering all the ends of justice. All right, and then the fifth one, then I want to turn it over to Chris. The common doctrine is that the conscious existence of the soul after the death of the body is unending, that there is no repentance or reformation in the future world, that those who depart uh, this life unreconciled to God remain forever in this state of, of alienation, and therefore forever sinful and miserable. This is the doctrine of the whole Christian church, of the Greeks, of the Latins, and of the great historical Protestant bodies. And uh, obviously I know Chris would uh, contend with that last point that Charles actually makes there, but I do want to turn it over to you and one, see if you have anything you want to add or see if anything you want to kind of follow up on and correct there. Sure. So a couple of things that come to mind. Firstly, what Hodge fails to mention there, unless I missed it in what you just read, the so-called common doctrine is not merely one of everlasting torment. Uh, it's, it's one in which the resurrected lost have been made physically immortal and capable of living physically forever in some dark, gloomy corner of the cosmos or whatever, where they can... Um, you know, muscles contracting and relaxing, eyes rolling in their sockets, lungs expanding and collapsing. It's not a disembodied eternal torment that begins the moment you die, as many lay Christians think. No, this traditional view of eternal torment is one in which resurrected people are made immortal so they can suffer forever in hell, in, in physical bodies. So that that's one thing I want to clarify. The other thing I'll point out is I think this breakdown into five views is a little bit superfluous. Um, I like the way that we at Rethinking Hell break it down, and, and I think this is largely agreed upon by um, theologians in the field, which is a, a breakdown into three views, one we represent with the so-called hell triangle. If people do a Google search for hell, rethinking hell triangle, they'll see what I'm talking about. But this, this triangle that we've got, uh, it, it's designed to illustrate that each of the three views, or each pair of the three views, shares something in common that the third view opposes. And in the case of what we're talking about here today, the thing that universalism and the doctrine of eternal torment both share is a belief that when people are raised from the dead, everybody, all human beings, both saved and lost, <clears throat> excuse me, will be made physically immortal and capable of living forever. The difference between the two views is that the one, universalism, says that these resurrected immortals will eventually repent. The doctrine of eternal torment says these resurrected immortals uh, that have not already been saved will never repent and be saved. By contrast, our view at Rethinking Hell, the doctrine of conditional immortality, says that immortality is not universal. It is, in fact, conditioned on saving faith, on being saved. So it's only the saved who will be raised immortal. It is only they who will receive eternal life. It is only they who will live forever in the glorious, blissful presence of God and in the community of his people. Everybody else that's raised unto judgment will still be mortal, and they will, in fact, die 
as the punishment for their sin. And the reason why sometimes this view is called annihilationism is because if in the first death the bodies of human beings die but their souls go on living consciously in the afterlife in some sense, um, in the second death, after the soul is reunited with the resurrected body and the lost are destroyed a second time, this time both their bodies and their souls will be destroyed, uh, never to live or experiencing uh, anything ever again. And in the course of our conversation, I'm sure we'll be able to say more. So, yeah, yeah I, I think. Oh, and, and one last thing I'll just say, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more as the conversation goes on. It's simply a false statement um, that Hodge makes that this has been the common doctrine since the beginning. Um, the reality is that the earliest uh, Christian writer, um, or at least tied for earliest Christian writer with Clement of Rome, is Ignatius of Antioch. And Igna Ignatius of Antioch is indisputably a believer in conditional immortality. He explicitly says that those who deny the resurrection of Christ will themselves not rise. He uses the language of death to speak of ordinary death, and he says this is what the punishment for sin is, etc., etc. And then, of course, there's Irenaeus of Lyon and Arnobius of Sicca and others in those early centuries of the Church. It's not until about the time of Augustine that the doctrine of eternal torment, which had arisen in the second century with people like Tatian and Athenagoras, uh, it's not until a couple of centuries later with Augustine that the doctrine of eternal torment really becomes the dominant view and remains such until well, well, until today. So that's uh, that's all. Those are the comments I wanted to make. That's good. And and I did. I assumed that you would you would disagree with that last point and his reference to the uh, the doctrine of the whole Christian Church, the Greeks, the Latins, and 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 that side of the conversation. Which um, I do hope that we'll get to that point of the conversation and the nature of the resurrection and how that relates to um, the just and the unjust. Um, or life and death, but I it, so just to kind of give you guys a um, a point of reference when when it, when I'm talking about the material um, that I went through and in, in studying the subject, I didn't just look at the eternal conscious torment side, but also um, Chris's side as well. Um, I didn't spend a whole lot of time studying the universal um, aspect of it. I think that's um, you don't need to. So yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> But um, if you go to BibleResearcher.org, and there's a hyphen in between Bible Researcher, um, there's some articles in there with some scholarly articles from Charles Hodge, from Stuart Salmon, from Larry Pettigrew, and Alan Gomes. Uh, but then there's also some kind of introductory articles from R.C. Sproul, Arthur Pink, and then Jonathan Edwards, his, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, which you can also uh, go to Karm.org, which... Is, uh, is run by Matt Slick, and, and he's written uh, 180 articles on this particular subject, which I, was t I, I can't remember if I was talking to Matt or if he said it in, in one of his recent podcasts, but um, he, he was saying that he'd be willing to have a debate with you in particular on, on the topic of conditional immortality. I don't know if we'll ever see that. Um, but I think well, that'd be. I, I, I can tell you right. I can tell you right now. We probably won't yeah. because I kept asking to have the debate. I even went to his house in Idaho and we yeah. sat down and enjoyed a conversation for a few hours. Uh, but in the end, he backed out. I see. So unfortunately, it doesn't look like that debate will ever happen. Okay. Um. Um. Okay. So then you you can go to rethinkinghell.com. And uh, there's tons of articles, tons of responses um, for the conditional immortality perspective there. Uh, there's another place that you probably have not heard of. It's called separationtruth.com. Uh, and there's, there's some pretty good articles in there. Uh, but then Paul, Paul, Paul Barth sent me some, um, some of the articles that he had written, which was sp specifically um, on the writings of WGT Shedd. 
which you can find at purelypresbyterian.com. Uh, and then the two sources that I used um, primarily that I think were the most beneficial to me um, it, with my perspective would be Robert Morey's uh, book on death and the afterlife. And then um, the other one was uh, Shedd's book. Where, where do I have that at? I can't, I don't think I... It's the Doctrine of Endless Punishment. Is that it? Is the name of the, okay. That's the name of Shedd's book. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither of those books are very good, by the way. And I mean that with the utmost of respect for you, but neither Robert Morey nor WGT Shedd really know what they're talking about on this topic, unfortunately. If listeners would like to um, get what we at Rethinking Hell tend to think is the best book on the topic in defense of eternal torment, I would encourage people to check out the um, the, collect, the, the collection of essays uh, called Hell, um, Hell Under Fire, I think is what it's called. Rethink, or Evangelical Scholars or Modern Scholarship Reinvents Eternal Punishment is yeah. the subtitle. The main title is Hell Under Fire. It's edited by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson. Yep. That's that's the book I recommend in, typically in defense of the Eternal Torment view. Yeah, and, and I've got that as well. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's good. So anyways, let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, so uh, let's start with this. I would, in my, in my notes, I was going to give my perspective um, on on hell and how it relates to the atonement, but I think for the sake of the conversation tonight, if if we get to that and it's it's something that needs to come up, then I'm more than willing to do that. But I think that um, I'll just fire these questions off to you and give you the chance to answer them and and give your perspective. So let's start with uh, kind of what was the most influential work um, on hell that influenced you the most and kind of. Um, um, where you were at before you before you became before you before you I guess started to believe conditional immortality. What did that journey look like for you? Well, I suppose it began very shortly after I became a Christian because uh, I knew, having been an atheist and having never attended church or anything like that, I, I nevertheless knew that Christians believed in eternal torment. And so when I became a Christian, I accepted it. And very soon after I became a Christian, I was challenged by Jehovah's Witnesses and some other heretic you know, heretical groups. Um, and as part of studying to um, interact and do apologetics with these people, um, I read books like Reasoning from the Scriptures by Ron Rhodes, I think was the guy's name, and other books yeah. like that. And in all of which, the authors defend the doctrine of eternal torment because of Jeho because of course Jehovah's Witnesses deny the doctrine of eternal torment. And so I learned very early on as a Christian how, how to defend biblically the doctrine of eternal torment, and I continued to defend it uh, for the entire, you know, years and years and years after that. Um, what happened, though, is that in 2011, I believe it was, uh, I was in dialogue with somebody that's now uh, a good friend and who's also a conditionalist, and I had brought up Matthew 10:28 because I was challenging this person's view of human nature, and in Matthew 10:28, Jesus refers to both a body and a soul. Um, and he said, well, but okay, we can talk about that, but notice that Jesus says there that in hell, both body and soul will be destroyed, right? And I said, yeah, I know, but then I've got texts like Mark 9, 48. And Mark 9, 48 is where Jesus talks about uh, those in Gehenna whose worm will not die and whose fire will not be quenched. The word never isn't there, by the way, that's a mistranslation. But anyway, um, I brought that up and I'm like, this makes me think it's gotta be consistent with uh, Matthew 10, 28. And, and the person I was talking to said, why don't you go check out what Jesus is quoting there? 
Um, because as it turns out, in Mark 9.48, Jesus isn't coming up with language of his own. He's quoting Isaiah 66.24, which is a scene in which explicitly it is dead bodies that are being consumed by maggots, that's what the worm is, and by fire. And so this got me thinking, wow, uh, the, the, my very, my first go-to text turns out to actually be seemingly on the surface of it better support for this other view, and so that's what prompted me to get Edward Fudge on my podcast. And so it, it's probably his book, The Fire That Consumes, which uh, at that time had just been released in its third edition, that's most influential for me, and that in the end ultimately convinced me, although like I said, it was several months after I had interviewed him. The one other thing I'll say was really influential though was uh, a good friend of mine named Joey Deer, and he's got a very long ebook available for free online called The Bible Teaches Annihilationism, I think is what it's called. Let me just make sure of that. If people Google, yeah, if people Google The Bible Teaches Annihilationism, Joseph Deer, the, one, of the, one of the links in the Google results will be a link to his blog at threeringbinder.org and it's just a massive something like three, four, five hundred 590 pages long but um, he was very helpful as I was going through this topic fielding all the various objections and questions I had um, so you've got a book you have to buy and then I've given you a book as well that's for free and available online if, if viewers want to learn more awesome um, okay, so you, you had mentioned um, Edward Fudge, and you, and you had briefly mentioned Pinnock earlier. Um, what would you say is the biggest difference between those two views? Edward Fudge was committed to the uh, infallibility and, and inspiration and authority of Scripture. Uh, Clark Pinnock, at least over time, uh, rejected the inerrancy of Scripture, rejected the, you know, the, held it in much lower, had a much lower view of Scripture than Edward Fudge did. Uh, moreover, um, Clark Pinnock became an open theist, whereas Edward Fudge was probably a typical standard Arminian. Um, uh, and there are probably other differences as well. Uh, Clark Pinnock, okay, here's another one, and this is really important. Clark Pinnock was extremely emotional. Um, I remember when I was first reading the first edition of Four Views on Hell put out by Zondervan, um, I was still not a convinced conditionalist. And I read Clark Pinnock. I am a convinced Calvinist, and so I read Clark Pinnock not only... Uh, as a believer in eternal, also a believer in, in reformed Calvinism, and I did not want to like what Clark Pinnock had to say, and I and I didn't like the first couple of pages, which is just all emotionalism, and and you know it just rubbed me raw. But the rest of his chapter makes out makes an extremely compelling biblical case, uh, and I couldn't deny that. So uh, so but but so whereas, whereas Clark Pinnock was very emotional, um, Edward Fudge was relentlessly biblical, mm -hmm. and you know. There's been a movie made about his life that makes it appear as though what triggered Edward Fudge into believing this view was the death of an unbelieving friend, and the movie makes it seem as though that motivated him to find an alternative to the traditional view. Um, but that's creative license. I mean, there, there's truth in there, um, but he was a believer, a firm believer in eternal torment when he was um, asked to undertake a study on the nature of hell, and what convinced him was uh, scripture, which is what convinced me. Um, to this day, I don't have any sort of emotional or philosophical objection to eternal torment. God is God, is God and I am not, and if he thinks eternal torment is the right punishment for sin, uh, I say amen. But I was uh, too committed to the doctrine. I was too committed to Scripture and its authority uh, to remain a believer in eternal torment. So anyway, yeah. those are three differences between those two. One is one is a open theist, and the other is 
pretty much standard Arminian. Uh, uh, one is um, uh, not very not as committed to scripture as the other, and then one was much more emotional than the other. I see. Hey, that's a pretty good breakdown. So, um, okay, now let's kind of transition here and uh, start getting into the conversation at, at, um, in, in a little more depth. But I think that, um, in, in my opinion, if you start to talk about, where's, where's the first point that you would start if you were going to talk about the doctrine of hell? And I think that it, it, it does kind of start with the nature of man, um, understanding w- what man is made of. Is, is it body, soul, and spirit? So it, what is it? Is it a dichotomy? Is man a dipartite being? Is he a trichotomy, a tripartite being? Or is it monistic and unitary? So um, where would you go in, in, in the relevance of that conversation when it comes to the nature of man? Are we, what, what is man? Uh, well, first I would say I think this is actually utterly irrelevant. Uh, and the reason I say that is because um, people who hold to all three of these views, you know, so you, you, you've got dualism and monism. And within dualism, which is the view that human beings have a physical part and a, and a non-physical part, within dualism, there's dichotomist and trichotomist. So the dichotomists would say that we have a body and we have a soul or spirit, right? Soul and spirit are sort of synonymous. The trichotomists would say we have a body and we have a soul and we have a spirit. And then the monists are typically physicalists. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the, this would sort of fall under the umbrella of soul sleep, um, although that is a little bit of a misnomer since physicalists uh, would not say human beings have immaterial souls to begin with. Um, But they would say that human beings are one thing which is physical. But it's worth noting that physicalists aren't the only monists. There's also idealists who think that human beings are uh, innately immaterial and and that's it. And I frankly can't understand that. So, um, but but all three, all of these views, trichotomist, dichotomist, physicalist, all of them are consistent with the biblical teaching on hell as uh, annihilation and as human beings as immortal only if they're saved. And uh, all three of those views are represented by people on the Rethinking Hell team and in the larger conditionalist community. Um, I've yet to see any good reason, exegetical or theological or philosophical or logical, uh, although philosophical and logical arguably are synonymous, um, I have yet to see any good reason for thinking that one's view of hell hinges on to any degree on any one of these views uh, over the other. Okay, so you would just say that it's irrelevant. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. And and I would wonder how the relevance of of someone who would just say that, um, you know, we're physical beings. We don't have a soul. We don't have a spirit. Um, in 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 relation to to hell, the afterlife, to spiritual regeneration, um, and and that side of the conversation. But um, I do want to ask when we're talking about. Um, hell, and we're talking about the nature of man, I, I think obviously the next part of the question would be um, to define what immortality is. So um, I'd, I'd like to start um, by giving what Robert Morey has to say on, uh, real briefly, on immortality and the afterlife in his book on death and the afterlife, and then turn it over to you and get your perspective on it. On page 94 in the first paragraph, he he draws a distinction between what he calls essential immortality, where he says, life having no beginning or ending, to the Greek idea of the pre-existence of the soul, or the Eastern ideas of transmigration slash reincarnation, and shows that the Bible teaches man's soul has a clear beginning at conception, which would be known as traducianism, and does not go through an endless cycle of rebirths. He, he then shows the idea of natural immortality, which views man as an autonomous and independent immortal being through some kind of innate power, 
as being erroneous since man is and always has been dependent on God and is not autonomous even in existence itself. He then says that death is not normal for man to exist in an afterlife is natural, quote-unquote. He says this because... Um, uh, because death is not normal, and it is unnatural for man to have his spiritual self separated from the physical self. It then would be natural for angels to exist in the supernatural realm or spiritual realm as a spiritual being, for they are not and were not intended to have a physical dwelling, so thereby death is neither natural nor normal. Uh, what, kind of, what kind of results is the necessity of re resurrection? Um, and, and maybe this will transi transition into my particular view on the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection um, as, it's, as it's related to the atonement. But I do want to get your take on immortality, just kind of define immortality, and if you want to respond to uh, Maury's position on immortality there, that we could go from there. Sure. Um, biblically defined, immortality is just uh, not dying. That's literally what the word means. Um, the the Greek word is athanatos. The Greek word thanatos means death, and it doesn't mean it's not some code word. It it, uh, it doesn't mean separation. That's that's a, a myth. What it does mean is to stop living. And athanatos takes the Greek uh, prefix a, meaning not, and it slaps it right there in the front of Thanatos and makes not dying. Um, and we see that word used in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is describing the resurrected bodies of believers and believers alone. There's simply no good reason for thinking that Paul is talking about all humankind, although I think we'll be talking about that in a moment. Um, but it's not the only word that translators sometimes translate immortal. There's another word which is probably more properly uh, described as, or translated incorruptible. Uh, the Greek word is aftharsia. And um, what it refers to is the kind of decay that accompanies death. Uh, it can be thought of as the decay that leads ultimately to death, like the kind of aging and deterioration of the, of the human body. Uh, but it can, also, it can also describe the decay of a dead body into, uh, into the dust. So here again is a word that Paul uses to describe the resurrected body of believers and believers alone in 1 Corinthians 15. So the idea in biblical terms, at least when it comes to human beings, is immortality means they'll never die. Incorruptibility means they will never decay. And this is language that is only in Scripture ever attributed to the resurrected bodies of believers. Now, I think Maury is, is uh, you know, he, it, it's legitimate to distinguish between essential and natural and gifted immortality or something like that. Um, no, not even the most ardent believer in eternal torment thinks that human beings are uh, essentially or intrinsically immortal. Um but they would say that, or many of them would say that human beings, their souls at least, are naturally immortal in the sense that God has created them to live forever. Uh, and they would say that God grants natural immortality to the resurrected bodies of the unsaved as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that distinction is legitimate, but it's irrelevant to this debate because no conditionalist argues, or at least no um, – Okay, I shouldn't say that. There are probably some who do. We at Rethinking Hell don't argue that uh, that the doctrine of eternal torment to any degree hinges on a mistaken idea that human beings are intrinsically immortal. We don't argue that way. That's a bit of a myth. Um, but we do. What we do argue is that 
the gift of immortality or the um, assignment of immortality, if you want to put put it that way, is something that only happens to the saved uh, in Scripture. And 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 I just do want to say one last thing. Sometimes believers in the doctrine of eternal torment, and I don't think this is the case with you based on some of the interaction I've seen you have, uh, some defenders of eternal torment will say that immortality means uh, more than just living forever. It means some quality of life forever, but there's literally not a shred of biblical evidence in support of that. Um, immortality simply means ongoing life, never never ending life. And the question that I think faces us today is, are the traditionalists or universalists right? And will all the resurrected human beings live forever? Or will only the saved live forever, which is what we conditionalists contend? Okay. Um, so there would be a lot to respond to in there to, and kind of fo- give some follow-up questions, but I do think that um, this is this is probably where the nature of, of the atonement may play a role um, in immortality, because obviously you're taking the position um, that immortality and incorruptibility are only granted to the believer, uh, which would be right. conditional upon um, not just the sustenance, of 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 God's God's nature in the afterlife, but also to God's um, to the the nature of the resurrected body, and um, and 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 that side of the conversation as well. But um, and I'm not sure if if you've ever heard. I'm sure that you've heard um, I, this position, um, but yeah. I, I I don't know if you've heard my take on it. And I'll just give it real briefly and, and get your response. I I do think that. Um, the nature of the resurrection is directly related to um, the atonement, and I know that it's been contended from different soteriological viewpoints, including your own, which I just mentioned, but I think that the difference is, um, in, in some sense, maybe, maybe and, and maybe we can talk about this a bit, that um, perhaps a, a person's soteriological view does affect um, their view on the doctrine of hell. And the reason I would say that is, is, and obviously you, you as a Calvinist would would be able to tell me where I'm right or wrong on this, but the Calvinist would tell you that the atonement itself is limited to God's elect, God's chosen people, who He predestined based off His active foreknowledge, that they would hear and they would believe the gospel, um, and therefore would have a resurrected body that's incorruptible and uh, immortal. Um, the Arminian would tell you the same thing, except with the caveat that uh, God's foreknowledge, it's passive and it's not active. Um, then the provisionalist will tell you that, that God died for all, but the atonement is still limited because it's only applied to those who believe um, the gospel. And by assertion, it's not applied to all those uh, people who don't believe, even though Jesus actually died for all people. The universe, universalist will tell you, just as we described earlier in the three views on hell, that um, literally everybody at some point is going to be uh, resurrected and given uh, new life in, in Christ because, one, if Christ died for all, then, a- then all would, a- in actuality, um, have to possess immortality and, and the nature of incorruptibility. And that would include angels, devils, the devil himself, um, to be reconciled back to God. So, anyways, my position is that I, I do believe that Jesus... Um, literally was and is the propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, but and, and I do think that you, um, as a Calvinist, really do have um, a, the correct view on the atonement, that if it is a propitiatory sacrifice, that it has to actually save. 
Um, so obviously we would, we would contend the differences there. And I'm not trying to bring this conversation back to soteriology, but my point is, um, with my view that Christ being a propitiatory sacrifice for all people, that he actually has paid for the sins of all people, that the nature of the resurrection is, is, is limited to the atonement, but the nature of eternal life in the sense of, uh, living in the presence of God and having all of the aspects of eternal life that God promised with him. Essentially, what you're doing is drawing a line and saying, heaven, hell, which way are you going? That is, is based off of the element of faith. And I think that we've, we've, we've placed a little too much emphasis on the distinction between the atonement and faith and said, well, um, only those who um, are atoned for will have faith. And uh, those who don't have faith are not atoned for. So that would, that would, but that doesn't mean um, that it's a universalist perspective. But anyways, that's a bit long-winded. Um, what would you say about the, the nature and the relation of one's soteriological view to the nature of hell? And if you wanted to critique my view, have at it. Okay. Uh, well, so first of all, when it comes to the relationship between soteriology and one's view of hell, again, I think it's irrelevant. Um, you have on both sides of this debate, in fact, on all three sides of the debate, you have Calvinists, Arminians, open theists, and you know everybody in between. Um, the, the reality is that whatever view you might hold on soteriology, you can, uh, if you are convic- convinced that the Bible teaches one or the other views of hell, you can find out you can make it you can hold it in such a way that it's consistent with whatever soteriology you might have now as for your specific view i understand what you're saying and um what i would say is just that i i would say two things first of all i think this idea that christ's atoning work secures resurrected immortality for all human beings but that only those who have faith experience their resurrected immortality forever in heaven um i think that that has two fundamental flaws, two fatal flaws. One, it directly contradicts many texts in scripture. Um, And secondly, there is no biblical basis for thinking that there are these two aspects, um, uh, uh, two scopes of Jesus' toning work, at least not that I'm aware of, and and, maybe we'll discuss this. I'm aware, I'll just put it that way, I'm aware of no biblical text that in any way indicate that there's a universal scope to Jesus' toning work, namely that he secures resurrection and immortality for all humankind, but then there's some other scope that is limited to only those who believe. I think that that's, um, I personally think that that's... an attempt to reconcile what is clearly an unbiblical tradition, namely the doctrine of eternal torment, with um, uh, the fact that Jesus, uh, his saving work throughout Scripture is only ever said to be applied to those who believe. So I think it's, number one, it contradicts Scripture, and number two, I think it lacks any biblical basis um, because it arises from an attempt to reconcile an unbiblical thing with a biblical thing. So yeah. that's, that's in a nutshell, my critique of your view. Um, and maybe at some point we would have the chance to kind of interact with that a little bit more, um, and, and, and I would like to, but I don't think that necessarily tonight it would be the night to do that. Um, sure, and just but, so you know, I'm I'm very happy to come back on the show again, uh, assuming that for some reason things don't derail and we start screaming <laughs> at each other. Uh, but yeah, I'd be happy to come on again at some other time and okay. we can dive into whatever details you want. Sweet. Sounds good, man. I appreciate that. So sure. um, let's look at, I think that that would be a good place to kind of transition here um, into, uh, let's see, where did my notes go on that? I've got, um, I've got, 
uh, hang on, I just lost my place. I was taking notes in what you were saying there. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about the nature of man. We talked about the, the influence of hell. We've talked about the nature of immortality and, and briefly uh, mentioned uh, Maury's point there and then my view. But what, what would you say about, and, and I know that typically when we talk about immortality, it, it seems like, and this may be just me, that you, you really don't want to bring um, the angelic realm into the conversation of immortality. Um, when it comes to the punishment in comparison to man and man's immortality when it comes to eternity. And I may be wrong there, so um, if you could, do you, do you believe that dev the devil and his angels are immortal and, and will suffer the same punishment as men in eternity? Um, what's the relationship there? Sure. So um, it depends, firstly, on what you mean by immortal. And, because, and, I, and I say that because I've defined what I think the Bible means when it uses the language of immortality. But historically, many Christians have used immortal just to mean doesn't naturally die. Yeah. Uh, and so very often Christians of the past would say the soul is immortal, not in the sense that it will live forever, but that it goes on living after the death because it can't naturally die. They, they wouldn't have necessarily said that precludes God from destroying it in the end so human so are angels and demons immortal in that sense they don't naturally die yes but are they immortal in the sense that the Bible uses the language of immortality namely they never die they will not die um, I would say the Bible ascribes that kind of immortality to the so-called you know the good angels the, the angels that have remained obedient to God uh, but I would not say that that's the case with the fallen angels I think that the fate of demon uh, Satan and his demons is the same as the fate of resurrected human beings which is final and everlasting destruction okay so you you would say um, in tr with the traditional definition of immortality that it just it would in the simplest form it just means they won't die um, that you do they not won't naturally die. That's the sort of the traditional meaning of immortal. Can you what break... I'm arguing the bib I'm sorry, go ahead. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so what I'm what I've suggested, whether or not it's accurate is of course another question, is that the traditional a traditional way of uh, a, a, a meaning for immortality is they won't naturally die. It doesn't mean they will never die. It just means it won't happen naturally. God would have to somehow, somehow super, super uh, you know, intervene to destroy it, to, to end its life. Whereas what I've argued is the biblical definition of immortality is simply the fact of not dying. They will never die. And what I'm yeah. suggesting is that if you go with that first definition, that death doesn't come naturally, but God has got to somehow intervene. Um, yeah, I think that the, the Bible ascribes that kind of immortality to angelic beings of all sorts. Namely, both the good angels and the bad ones uh, will indeed go on living naturally unless and until God intervenes. But what I've argued is that the, based on the biblical definition of immortality, the simple fact of never dying is something that is only said of the uh, good angels and not the bad ones. The bad ones will in fact be destroyed. Okay. Um, and let me... Let me kind of follow up here. I know this is something that you you typically would follow up with in, in reference to um, kind of how God views evil. And it, it, it goes kind of like this. If, um, if the argument is that the devil and his angels would continue to live um, until God intervenes to punish them as, with the means of, of death, as, as in ceasing to live, how would the argument that God abhors evil so much that he seeks to eradicate it 
and therefore not immortalize evil beings in the sense that they would continue to live naturally and not die, um, related to our particular conversation with man and immortality. Um, and, and I wonder if we can kind of bring that back to the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. Would that, would that be kind of where the conversation would go with the nature of man, that man would have gone on to live um, in a natural state and not died had they not have eaten of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, or if they would have tre- eaten of the tree of, of, of life, would they have con- continued to live if they hadn't eaten from either tree? So that might be kind of a long, drawn-out way of saying, hey, can we compare the two going back to the garden? <laughs> All right, well, let me speak to the garden second and, and uh, address the first thing that you said. What, what you were doing there, just for your viewers' sake, is referring to an argument that I have um, become... Uh, persuaded by, it wasn't something I had considered before I became a conditionalist, but afterwards it's become increasingly compelling to me. Namely, the God that uh, Scripture presents to us, the God that we worship as Christians, is one who is holy, holy, holy. He thrice holy, he abhors evil, and he will not countenance for countenance it forever. At least that's what I would argue we would normally say if we worked in the debate about hell. Uh, all of a sudden, a lot of convictions seem to have got <laughs> fly out the window as soon as people start defending the doctrine of eternal torment. But, um, and I'm not accusing you of that, but uh, but it does happen. So, so if it's true that God abhors evil and and won't tolerate it forever, then it would stand a reason that God would end evil altogether at some point, which is what he does do according to the doctrine of conditional immortality, both for human beings and for those of us conditionalists who also think that the fallen angels will be destroyed for them as well. God entirely eradicates evil, and everything is uh, the way that God intends it, and it's pure and, and good uh, in all creation. Uh, now, how does that argument, whether or not it's accurate, whether or not it's legitimate, how does that argument relate to well, the issue of fallen angels? Well, as I've, I've already said it, um, those of us who believe that God will destroy the demonic realm as well as human beings in the end, we can leverage that argument because God will indeed eradicate all evil beings. But there are some who would call themselves conditionalists or annihilationists who would say that and the, the, the Satan and his demons, being of a different nature, being of a different ontology than human beings, will go on living forever in torment. Um, and I would find it difficult for them to be able to leverage the same argument. Yeah. Because how for obvious reasons, right? Why? How could you say God's going to eradicate evil as an argument for this view if you're going to say he's still going to let the angelic, the fallen angels go on doing evil forever? Right. I, I would think that's fairly inconsistent. Now, as for the garden, um, yes, it, it seems uh, extremely clear, and even people that have not always held this view but still hold to the doctrine of eternal torment, like William Lane Craig, um, even he has come around to this realization recently in his uh, Defender series that that the uh, the picture of the Garden of Eden in Genesis one through three is one in which human beings are, you might say, immortal bull. They're capable of being immortal if they remained in obedience. It, the, the, the theoretically, God might had they had they continued to. Um, be obedient and had they not sinned, God may have continued to grant them access to the tree of life or maybe even transform their bodies at some point to make them naturally immortal um, had they gone on uh, being obedient. But they weren't obedient, they sinned, and the text of Scripture explicitly says in Genesis 3, 21 and 22, I believe it is, that the reason that 
God revokes Adam's, Adam's and Eve's access to the tree of life is so that they will no longer be able to eat from it and thereby live forever. So it seems pretty clear that the tree of life, and, and I think this is true whether you take it as a literal account of history as I do, or whether one takes it as sort of a, 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 a theological picture or polemic against the surrounding ancient Near East cultures. Either way, the, the, the picture communicates the idea that um, human beings are naturally mortal ever since the fall, and that only whatever the tree of life symbolizes uh, and, um, secure immortality for human beings. Now, it's worth noting, though, before I hand the microphone back over to you, that that tree of life does reappear in Scripture. This is one of the reasons why I've often said that conditional immortality is taught very clearly from Scripture, literally from cover to cover, because you've got it on one cover in Genesis 3, and then you've got it at the other cover in Revelation 22. Uh, in Revelation 22, in this apocalyptic vision that John is seeing while in exile on the island of Patmos, he sees the tree of life reappear in the heavenly New Jerusalem that has come down to earth, and uh, you know, and it's on either side of the river of life, and only the saved have access to the fruit of this tree of life. What seems, I would argue, and of course we can disagree here, what seems to be communicated by that symbolism of the tree of life being, uh, once again, people are given access to it, is that they will be immortal. They will have the kind of enduring, everlasting life that Adam, Adam and Eve would have if their access to the tree of life had been revoked. But of course, the the unsaved in that symbolic vision in the book of Revelation do not have access to that tree, which I think is a real challenge to the notion that all human beings will have resurrected immortality. Um, so the one thing that I that I can kind of see that um, in in my mind is problematic for that that particular view in relation to Adam and Eve in the garden um, is is obviously you've got the two options that are presented before them. And, and, and one of them comes as, with a warning from God that where, he, right. where he says, you know, in the day that you eat, you're surely going to die. Um, and, and it seems like if he had to tell them that they were going to, if they ate of that tree, that they would die, that they would continue to live until uh, they, had, they had broken the command to actually um, personally know intimately good and evil that resulted in death. So it, it seems to me, and, and maybe that isn't problematic in, in, your, in your mind, uh, but it seems to me like they, they would have continued to go on to live unless they would have eaten from that tree. And therefore, the, the tree of life um, may have a little bit deeper meaning than what we would consider as just like, hey, you're going to live forever now. Um, but in, in relation, yeah, go ahead if you want to respond to that first. Sure, yeah. So, I'd have a lot to say if we had more time on Genesis 2.17, which yeah. is, I think, the passage you're referring to where Adam is warned on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Um, I don't think that he is being told that he would drop dead on the very day that he ate of the fruit. That's one very traditional way of reading that text, but it's not a way that Hebrew scholars very often read that text. Right. And if you want me to go into more detail, I can. But, but for the sake of moving the conversation forward, I'm willing to concede that perhaps there is some sort of spiritual death as well that literally occurred on the day that they ate of the fruit. But it's very clear that that's not what Genesis 3, 21 and 22 is about. Yeah. When Adam and Eve, uh, when they're kicked out of the gardens, they, they can no longer eat from the tree of life. It's explicit 
that it's so that they will not live forever. So yes, yeah. um, there may be two dimensions of death, sort of spiritual death and physical death, but but the tree of life is what would have secured ongoing physical life, and that reappears in the book of Revelation where only the saved have access to its fruit. Um, so, okay, and that would be kind of a side question, but and you had mentioned earlier that it seems like uh, those who would hold to the eternal conscious torment view that when when life is spoken of and eternal life is spoken of that it's that anyone who would say that it's it's a better quality of life in in conjunction with eternal life that that seems to be a position that's lacking could you kind of expand on that why do you think that um that is a that's kind of lacking and in, and in, in wanting more in the conversation sure so firstly i think it's lacking because it's um I think it results in an inconsistency, at least for most offenders of eternal torment, because most most offenders of eternal torment will say that eternal means everlasting, uh, but then many of them will turn around and say that it actually refers to quality and that the wicked won't get this quality. But it's the very same use to des- word used to describe the punishment of the lost in Matthew twenty five forty six. So if you want to say that it actually refers to quality, well then you no longer have the argument from Matthew twenty five forty six that punishment must be eternal, ergo eternal torment. So you end up with this inconsistency. And by the way, I think the punishment is eternal, um, but maybe we'll get to that at some point. (laughs) My, my, My point is... Yeah, my, my my point is just that at least for some traditionalists, going that route uh, leaves them in a in a, uh, a bit of an inconsistency. But but the yeah. more important point is just that I think that the um, evidence for eternal life being sort of a term of art, uh, a a um, uh, uh, an idiom for some sort of not just everlasting life but everlasting blissful life or something like that, uh, I think it's number one. Extre- it's it's extremely lacking in biblical support. In in fact, as far as I can tell, there's only one verse in Scripture that can be pressed into service into meaning that, and that's John 17:3, I believe it is, where um, uh, Jesus says that to that, that uh, this is eternal life, knowing the Father and, and Jesus whom He has sent. Um, the problem is that commits the fallacy that Don Carson in his book Exegetical Fallacies, he calls it the unwarranted restriction of the semantic field. What that means is that the the the, the verb is uh, we in in grammar we. We call it the copula. Um, that word is extremely flexible, and the argument that, etern- that that what Jesus is doing here is defining eternal life assumes that the copula is uh, ha- carries the meaning of identity. Um, that that eternal life equals knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But the reality, even as Don Carson himself says in his very treatment of this fallacy, um, is that the copula actually has a range of meaning. And one of those meanings is the meaning of cause or um, means, that kind of idea. And what we see is that there are three places in the book of John, only three, where um, life is on the predicate side of a... um, of one of these kinds of statements, you know, something is life. One of them is the one we've just been discussing. In both of the other two, what Jesus says is life is actually the cause of life, what produces life, what what results in life. Um, I don't have them at the top of my uh, on the top of my head, but if people uh, look at the Rethinking Hell live um, videos in the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, they'll eventually find it. But in one of them, Jesus says to the Father, "Your words are are, are life and spirit, or or life and truth, or something like that." He's not literally saying that his Father's words are life. 
He's not identifying them with one another. He's saying that the father's words or his own words, whichever one he's talking about, result in life. And then in another place, he does something similar. So if we're going to treat Jesus's words consistently, we would we would we would understand that John seventeen three is not defining eternal life as meaning knowing God and Jesus whom He has sent. We would understand him to be saying that knowing Jesus, knowing God and Jesus whom He has sent results in life, which is consistent with everything that He says all throughout all four Gospels. <coughs> Excuse me. The other reason that I'll just add that this view that eternal life is an idiom or whatever is um, problematic is, is that Jesus says. Um, I don't. I didn't just come to give you life, but I came to give you life abundantly. Yeah. If life, if life already meant union with God, relationship with God, bliss, you know, any of these kinds of things, Jesus wouldn't need to say not just life, but life abundantly. So, so life, biblically speaking, is just embodied life for human beings. It's 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 having a body animated by the life-giving breath of God. And if human beings have souls, then it's the unity of body and soul. That's all life is. And if that life is eternal, then it goes. People go on living in that way forever. But Jesus didn't come to bring only that. He also came to bring abundant life. Yeah. Um. And and that's something that is captured by that phraseology, not the phraseology of eternal life. See, and I was going to bring up um, John 10.10 in relation to the quality of life. And and there might be a little bit deeper deeper meaning when it comes to eternal life, and I'm sure there is, like we're trying to simplify it in a soundbite. Um, but I, I think it may be a little more complex. But um, I would ask this. You just said that perhaps the definition of life would be the unity of, of, of the soul with the body. So why wouldn't we think, when we think of death, um, the separation of the soul from the body um, and, and how that would relate in our, our definition of, of, uh, of death with the second death. How would that relate when yeah, it comes to that? That's a very good question, and it's actually a very easy answer, and that is in, two t- in the two texts that are going to most inform our answer to this question, um, one of them is Matthew 10, 28. Uh, in which Jesus says, "Don't fear God, or don't fear men who can kill only the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both. Uh, fear the one, but he's talking about God who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna." And the other one is in James. I want to say James two twenty six. Let me see if I got that right. Yeah, he says, "As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." Now, here's the here's what I'm getting at with both of these two verses. Both of these two verses define uh, when, when assuming that they 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 have a dualistic meaning. You know, a, a anthropological dualism where human beings have a body and a soul. Assuming that's what they're that these verses are referring to, when the when a person dies in the first death, according to these verses, it's only the body that dies. Yeah, the the spirit or the soul does not. Mm-hmm. So, so if it were true that death meant separation, as is sometimes contended by well-meaning traditionalists, the problem with that is then the spirit separated from the body would also be dead if death means separated. But it doesn't. It's only the body that's dead, according to these two verses, which means that death, uh, as it pertains to the body, is the, the the fact of being inanimate, inactive, inert. It just be, it just becomes reduced to inert matter. Well, if the soul or the spirit goes on experiencing activity and consciousness and so forth, when the body is dead after the first death, then in the second death. If it's going to, if the soul is going to experience that death along with the body, which is what Matthew ten twenty eight seems to indicate, then the soul in the second death would also become inert, inactive, inanimate, or whatever. So the whole person, both body and soul, would cease to experience any sort of ongoing life. Um, 
so that's that's why I don't think that even assuming a traditional anthropological dualism of body and soul in which the first death results in the soul continuing to live, that doesn't challenge conditional immortality. In fact, arguably, it actually lends itself to our view rather than to the traditional view. Um, okay, so you 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 had just said, and and I might be picking up on something that I that I haven't caught before, uh, unless I'm just completely misunderstanding what you're saying, which is very possible. Um, but when when you you define death as the separation of the soul from uh, from the body, and that that would be death, it would make the body inanimate, and uh, um, life would cease from it. Um, now, when we talk about the second death, and you, you did briefly, you just mentioned it, that the second death would seem to indicate um, that both the body and the soul would cease to exist at that point uh, of the second death. They would cease to have life. So they would... So, so, okay, and maybe we can draw out on that a little bit more, because sure. <laughs> we, had, we had kind of mentioned that in, in the Facebook group earlier as well. Um, but I, I would ask, um, why would we... Why would we why would we take the position that the soul would go on to live after the first death, um, but after the second death, it would be completely destroyed? And, and obviously mm-hmm. you're saying, well, fear God who can destroy both uh, body and soul. Um, but it, is, is that the, would that be kind of the, the go-to verse and, and where you're getting the definition of, of killing the body and the soul in the sense that the first death would be a reference to the soul leaving the body? And, yeah, how does that kind of go? Yeah, if, if what you're asking me is is Matthew ten twenty eight my go to proof that um, the that if the soul continues living after the first death, it won't after the second death. Yes, I think that's the most powerful refutation of that mistaken view. But um, but there are other indications as well, if not quite as powerful. So, for example, the place where disembodied souls go is uh, Hades in the New Testament, Sheol in the Old. And, uh, you know, that's where the scene of Lazarus and the rich man plays out in Luke 16, um, awaiting resurrection. And uh, we see that in other places in the New Testament. But in the book of Revelation, after Hades is emptied of its dead in resurrection, Hades is then thrown into the lake of fire, um, which a few verses later in Revelation chapter 21, God says, death shall be no more. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the picture of death and Hades being thrown emptied into the lake of fire communicates the uh, destruction of death and Hades. So there is no longer a place for disembodied souls to go. Now, that's not as powerful an argument because one could respond by saying, oh, God just creates another place for disembodied souls to go. Well, we can come up with all sorts of ad hoc answers to things if we want. So it's not as powerful an argument as Matthew 10:28. But there are also others. There are biblical indications that the uh, eschaton, the eternal state, is one that is in which God's cosmos has been entirely right. freed from the stain of sin and so forth. And that, too, would seem to suggest that um, the soul ceases as well after the second death. Because the, co- the God's creation does not only include the physical realm. So if God's entire creation, both physical and immaterial, um, are completely uh, freed, cleansed from sin, then there'd be no room for disembodied souls either. Um, So yeah, those are a few reasons why uh, one might think that if the soul keeps on living after the first death of the body, it won't after the second. Okay. Um, So now I want to quote from, and and kind of transition here, but we're still going to be on the topic of mortality and immortality. And this comes from Larry Pettigrew. 
and where he sa says this, the argument from conditional immortality is also based in part on a genetic fallacy, i.e. of assuming that explaining the existence of an idea is sufficient to account for it and discount it. It is founded on a misunderstanding of the historic Christian teaching on the immortality of the soul, which you'd already mentioned earlier, um, as well as its relationship to Plato. Uh, Orthodox theologians have consistently taught that only God is inherently immortal, rejected all ideas of the pre-existence of the soul, and stressed that God grants eternal life, which is the connotation of immortality in 2 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 15.53, which would be only to the redeemed. So there's no disagreement on these things uh, between the conditionalist and those holding a historic view of hell. The, he goes on, he says, The real issue is whether God grants endless existence to unbelievers for the purpose of punishing them or whether he punishes them into non-existence. It seems clear from Revelation 20.10, as well as, as uh, will be discussed later, that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are punished forever. Do they somehow have inerrant immor or mor immortality? Of course not. God will keep them in existence endlessly in order to punish them. Similarly, the wicked will be punished consciously forever in hell, not because they exist as immortal, so immortal souls, but because they are sustained by God. So it seems like there's a couple things in there that you could respond to, and perhaps you've picked up on more than, than I did. But one, if what do you think about him claiming that uh, the conditional immortality position is based on the genetic fallacy? And two... Um, the nature of God granting endless existence to unbelievers um, on his sustenance and not the nature of immortality itself. Excellent questions. Um, so firstly, and I mean that, I really appreciate the questions. Uh, so firstly, I think he's simply wrong when he says that it's based on a genetic fallacy. What he's assuming is that the argument from conditional, conditional immortality is that the immortality of the soul uh, is Platonic in origin and that it is what grounds the doctrine of eternal torment. Now, there there are arguably some conditionalists who've argued in that way, but that's not the doctrine, that's not the argument from conditional immortality. The argument from conditional immortality is simply that the Bible says God will grant immortality only to the saved. So, yeah, I, I don't think that the doctrine of eternal torment uh, depends on a Platonic understanding of the immortality of the soul, although I will say it's interesting that some of the earliest church fathers who, who taught eternal torment cited Plato in support of their view, but arguably they weren't saying let's believe this because Plato taught it, but rather, look, even the, even the pagans know it, right? So there, there's that argument that could be made, and so I would discourage conditionalists from leaning on that too much, uh, but the point is, is that the argument really has nothing to do about that. The argument from conditional immortality is about what the Bible says about immortality. Now, as for the other issue of God sustaining people, is sustaining people's existence, there are two big problems with that line of reasoning. Firstly, it... Um, it, it very often, we conditionalists are accused of um, equivocating between life and existence. But what you can see right here on the page is that it's actually this author, Pettigrew, that's doing that. Because he doesn't just believe the wicked will exist. If, if, if all it were were existence, that could happen as a disembodied soul. But no, it's life embodied life. So he's actually equivocating existence and life, not us conditionalists. But secondly, and more importantly, God sustains everything that's alive. 
right? But what does Paul say at the Areopagus to the pagans? He says, in him we live and move and have our very being. He says, God grants, uh, you know, life and breath and everything. Um, the, the doctrine of uh, the aseity of God, the independence of God, is that anything that exists or lives, exists or lives because God sustains it. And that will be true even of the uh, resurrected and glorified righteous in the eternal state. They will go on living forever because God keeps them alive. And it may be that the means by which he keeps them alive is by granting them bodies that uh, don't experience decay and death naturally or whatever. We can That would be an interesting speculation to have. But the point is, is that we, unless we're willing to um, say that somehow we've become God— then we have to say that we, even in the eternal state, who are saved, will go on existing and living only because God grants it. Um, but of course, God grants us life now. We live right now only because God is sustaining us, and yet we are mortal. Why? Because that we know from the scriptures and from ordinary human experience that that sustaining of our lives won't go on indefinitely. We are aging and decaying, even as God is sustaining us alive. So you can't say, well, that's all God's going to do for the wicked in hell. He's just going to do it forever. No, because he's already doing that now, and yet we're only mortal we're mortal because we will die. The only way to say that God is going to sustain the lives of the wicked in hell forever is by saying he gives them immortality. And that's the crux of this debate. What does the Bible say um, is the scope of human immortality? See, and I think that's where, um, so I've got a couple of things that, that I, I kind of thought about while you were, while you were um, giving your response there. One would be, I, I do believe that my position um, gives gives a pretty good argument that uh, the nature of the resurrection for both the uh, the just and the unjust and I know I know that you have an explanation for what what the unjust is in relation to condemnation and and in that side of the conversation but anyways um, that's kind of a rabbit trail what I'm saying is I think that if if you can say that the atonement did purchase uh, um, everyone literally um, the, the, the saved and the lost, um, and therefore, obviously, I'm not taking the universal position that everyone would end up in heaven, that, that the limiting factor would be faith, and I have to stress that um, because there's probably people who haven't ever heard that position for before without saying it is a universalist position. Um, but if God did purchase them, and what he did purchase is the resurrected body of that person, um, then that would make a lot of sense uh, when, when you talk about the immortality of 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 the resurrected body of both the just and the unjust, the believer and the non-believer, if you want to phrase it that way. But my question would be, and I didn't have this in the notes, I didn't really um, That's okay. prepare for it, but um, just something that kind of I, I was thinking about while you were talking. What do you think uh, the nature of the resurrection for the non-believer is in comparison to the believer? And, and, and how does that relate to soul sleep? How does that relate to... And you may say that those are uh, that would be irrelevant, um, but I would like to know what your take is on that. Sure. Before I answer your question, though, let me just say I agree with you that um, that that I mean, I, let me put it this way: I've already told you what I think is the flaw, the flaw, or the flaws with your position. Um, uh, but I think that you your view wouldn't suffer from the critique I just offered of Pettigrew's statement precisely because, if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you don't think that God merely 
um, sustains the existence of people in hell. No, he sustains them their lives. See, I think they're, they're resurrected. Hold on, and, and and he and he grants them immortality in the way that the Bible defines it, which is endless life. Uh, if I I think I've seen you even as even interview Scott Smith on your po- on your on your podcast, in and and that was the agreed upon um, premise that all human beings will be raised to bodily life right. and bodily immortality. And while I don't think that that view is supportable by scripture. I think it's untenable, and I don't think it's supportable by uh, uh, um, theology and philosophy and other things as well. Mm. Nevertheless, it escapes my critique of Pettigrew because you do seem to be willing to ascribe the language of immortality to the resurrected, embodied lost. Yeah, um, and I think that's where we would differ in the definition of what Pettigrew is is describing as sustenance uh, versus immortality, um, because I think that he is he's not taking it as far as Scott Smith would um, in actually describing the the nature of the relationship of the atonement to the resurrection um, and the resurrection of. Uh, the just and the unjust for their bodies. So I think that's probably why you would see the differences um, in in the nature of that kind of the vocabulary there. Um, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's a good way to put it. It was it was uh, really wise to use the word vocabulary because I don't think that Pettigrew believes significantly differently from you guys. He may not have. He may not have come up with a justification for the wicked being raised immortal, as you and Scott Smith believe you guys have, but um, uh, but the vocabulary he's trying to avoid using is the vocabulary of life and of immortality. Yeah. Right. He's intentionally trying to avoid using the word life by equivocating yep. and calling it existence, and he's intentionally trying to avoid the language of immortality by saying God is just merely sustaining them. And I think it would be better for somebody to to hold the traditional view and just embrace, as you and I think Scott Smith have done, if I'm not mistaken, which is yeah, embodied life and immortality are in fact purchased for all humankind by the atoning work of Christ. Yeah. Now. I I don't think you'll find biblical support for that, but at least you'll avoid this vocabulary game playing that I think Pettigrew is guilty of. See, and that's where um, that's where I'm saying, like, hey, maybe we can continue the conversation there, because uh, I mean, mm-hmm. and you've said, well, I just don't think there's biblical support there, but I don't, I haven't heard any biblical support to show that it's not there, um, and that that may be where I'm like, oh, you know, that is that would be a really interesting conversation if we could really think about that, go back and sit down and go, you know, what is yeah. the biblical support for that? And toss it yeah, around, I'd love to. but yeah, if, if you if you have me back on the show, maybe that's what we could focus on in yeah. our next yeah discussion. Now, going yeah. back to your, you want me to go ahead and answer? Your I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna. Yeah, okay. let's follow. What is the nature of the resurrected body for the non-believer? Sure, uh, mortal. It's it's really simple, um, and, and you see this even in places like um, Luke twenty verses thirty five and thirty six. If people look uh, look up that again, it's Luke twenty verses thirty five and thirty six. Uh, uh, Jesus says he's talking to the Sadducees who deny resurrection and any sort of afterlife, and he says to them, "Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are, are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." Now notice what Jesus is doing here. He's saying there's a group of people who he describes as being considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. He says they are equal to angels. They are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. There's no way that, I mean, even if you did hold to, you know, even if one did want to hold to your view that um, the atoning work of Christ secures embodied immortality, uh, resurrected embodied immortality for all humankind, Jesus is here calling those people that, uh, uh, that, that qualify in that way as sons of God. 
And so unless you're willing to say that as well of the wicked, that they too are sons of God in hell, then I think you run into a big problem because it's because Jesus is here saying that it's those who are the sons of God who in their resurrected bodies will be unable to die anymore. The implication being that those who are not will not. They, they will remain able to die. So with what what is the nature of the resurrected bodies of the lost? Mortal, just like ours are. Um, whereas believers will be raised immortal, glorified. Uh, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and even here in Luke 20, 35 and 36. Now, whether or not that has it, anything to do with soul sleep i can't see any relationship to that uh as far as i, I can tell that's that it's fairly irrelevant yeah um the, and the only thing that i would um that i would draw out of that um that that comparison of the resurrection um and being called sons of god i i'm not seeing that in the passage where is it saying that those who are raised to life are uh, sure so it's beginning in verse 35 of Luke 20. Jesus says, those who are considered worthy to it. By the way, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, yeah. I don't know if that matters. But the, but it says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor, given, nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. Yeah, um, so I, I don't, I see that, to me, that would be, um, it, that would be, What's the? Uh, I I think that it's kind of what I can't think of the fallacy. Um, it's 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 just because the one side of of the resurrection is being compared here, um, that it doesn't necessarily exclude the other. That it's that it's referencing the other side of the resurrection as well. I think this this would specifically be in, um, a reference to those who are raised alive in in comparison to those who are not raised. Um, um, to life for the believer versus the non-believer, but that's just kind of what I'm looking at right off the top, the front here. Well, and and I do think that's what ultimately you have to do in order to hold the doctrine of eternal torment. You've got to say that Jesus is is talking about the saved, and he's talking about them being unable to die anymore in the resurrection, but he isn't intending to say that's not also true of the lost. Yeah. But I think that suffers from two problems. Number one, I think it's entirely ad hoc. I think anybody who's reading this at the, you know, um, without the hell debate in mind is going to say, oh, Jesus seems to be saying that it's the sons of God who won't be able to die anymore, not everybody. Uh, but more, arguably more importantly, there's a very important connecting conjunction um, toward the beginning of verse 36. He says they cannot die anymore because the the Greek conjunction, conjunction is gar. It's a logical conjunction. It's saying that the one is true because of the other, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. So unless you want to say that the wicked are also, the resurrected wicked are also going to be sons of God, then Jesus' connection, his logical connection between not dying and being sons of God doesn't make any sense. Well, um, see, and, and what I would say is it, it seems like your position would be a little more inconsistent in, in what you just described there because he clearly says in verse 36, they cannot die anymore for they are equal to the angels. So you're saying that the angels, the angels will at some point cease to exist. So it seems like to me, you're you're you've got a category of the sons of God in in reference to um, the same angels uh, that 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 will not die, that cannot die, um, in right. reference and, and, to those who are raised. 
that would be true if what Jesus was talking about there is the entire angelic um, uh, race. So we're you know the entire yeah. angelic species. But if I'm you look you at that. the parallels, yeah. But if you look at the parallels of this passage, I'm I'm trying to find them. Maybe you can look up in your Bible software as well. But if you look at the um, parallels in the other synoptics where this uh, statement is made, he specifically refers to the angels of God, the, the angels of heaven. And so um, Jesus is not talking here about the entire um, race of ace of angels. He's talking about the angels who qualify as sons of God, the the the, the righteous, obedient angels. Um, so I don't think I'm guilty of that category error or, or that inconsistency. Well, if, if you'd like, I can try to find the other passage. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I think you and I are saying the same thing there because you're saying that this is a reference to uh, you're saying that there's clearly two categories of angels, and I'm saying yeah, there's two categories of of the resurrection as well, it, from, based off the same sure. passage. That right, but but notice that what he says it's only those who are equal to the heavenly angels, the good angels, and yeah. who are sons of God. It's only they, or yeah. it's because these people are sons of God that they cannot die anymore. That's what the Greek word "gar" means. It's because. So so what you would have to say is that Jesus is saying they cannot die anymore because they're sons of God, but those who aren't sons of God will be able to won't be able to die anymore either. Even though Jesus says the reason they can't die anymore at, in the resurrection is because they're sons of God. Um yeah, so I I think that I I think that we I think that we're agreeing, but it might be, it might be kind of talking past each other. Um or at least I might be talking past you or I'm missing a point that you're making, but um, I don't know. Let me, yeah, let me, yeah, yeah. Let me, try one, let me try one more thing, and then and then I'll let you move on. Okay. If, you, uh, if if you'd like, um, let's put it this way: you believe, if I'm not mistaken, that every resurrected person will be unable to die anymore. Correct? Yes. Okay. Jesus here says, if we define that, die as you cease to exist, that you're not conscious no, anymore. No. If you define die as you don't cease to live embodied. Right, you don't just believe the wicked are going to be disembodied in in hell forever. You believe they're going to be in living immortal bodies, right? Yes. So they won't. So both the saved and the lost will have embodied, enduring life forever, but, but and will not be able to die anymore physically. Correct. But what I believe is when we when we talk about death, it, just like we were talking about earlier, and this would kind of tie it all back together. Um, that when we were describing death, and, and you agreed with this, that the definition of death would be the separation of the soul from the body. No, 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 no. I, I actually argued ex explicitly against that definition of oh, death. Oh, did you? Because, yeah, because in Matthew 10, 28 and James 2, 26, only the body is said to be dead. If the if death were defined as separation of any sort, then it would be equally applied to both body, dead body, and separated soul. But these two passages yeah. apply the language of death only to the body. So the biblical definition of, of death is not a separation of any sort. It's to cease to live. And if the when the body ceases to live the first time a person dies, the soul might go on living, but the body dies. And 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 death does not isn't defined as separation. It would arguably entail separation when the body ceases to live. That is when the body dies. It's separated from the soul, which goes on living. But but here, 
it's number but even putting all that aside it's very clear that Jesus is talking about physical death because he says because he's saying it's these resurrected people um, not only not only because he's talking about the resurrection in the context of this death but also because he's saying that it's because they cannot die anymore that they are neither married nor given in marriage but of course if, if death meant separation of some sort here, that wouldn't be any reason for establishing that they won't be married any longer or be given in marriage any longer. But if people don't die anymore, then there is a very clear logical connection there because there's no need any longer to reproduce because people don't die anymore. So for those two reasons, I would argue it's extremely clear that Jesus is talking about physical death here. But notice what he says about those that cannot die physically, if I'm right. It's because, he says, they are sons of God. So if you want to also say that the resurrected wicked will be physically immortal and will not be able to physically die anymore, then you would have to say that Jesus' logical connection here between not dying anymore and being sons of God it doesn't isn't actually a logical connection. Because after all, you believe the wicked can't die either, and yet they're not sons of God. Um, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think there, <laughs> there's so much to respond to there. I know, I know. <laughs> um, all right, so what do you think about this? The first point that you made in, in defining death, you said, well, it can't be the separation of the soul from the body because the soul goes on to the live. In reference to death, it's the reference of the body. Um, so for me, I, I think that when, when I'm going to define death, I want to look at um, how the Bible uses that term. And obviously, you would want to do the same thing. But in Gen Genesis 35, 18... Um, it says, and it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that the, the, the way the Bible uses death is when the soul separates from the body, not simply in reference to the body, because it's, it, it seems like every time there's a reference to the body being dead, it's never actually said to be dead, it's said to be asleep. Well, no, that's not the case. I, I do want to talk about Genesis 35 in a moment, but before I do, let me take you back to Matthew 10.28 and James 2.26. Because what Jesus says about the first death in Matthew 10.28 is that the body is killed, but not the soul. So, so killing, which is sort of the active counterpart to dying, which is the passive side, is only is language only ascribed to the body, but not the soul. Uh, the same is true of James two twenty six. Although there, it's the spirit is the language it's used, not um, uh, not the language of soul, and it's the body that's dead apart from the spirit, not the spirit. So, the first point I'm making here is that um, in death, even if humans, when they die the first time, their soul goes on living. Death is not the separation of those things. Death is because because the language of death only applies to the body. Um, that death of the body may result in or entail or include or be accompanied by the separation of body from soul. I'm fine with that. But that doesn't mean that death is defined that way. Quite the contrary, these texts make it clear that death isn't defined that way. Now, as for Genesis 35:18, um, I, I, I let me ask you this: Do do you know what the what the word nephesh ordinarily means in the Hebrew? Yeah, the nephesh would be the soul. That's not the case. There arguably are some places where that might be the case, but typically the word just means life. Um, you see that, for example, in Genesis one, every single time some creature, including humankind, is called a nephesh chaya, that that's a living soul or living being. That that language is ascribed to the uh, regular animals as well. But what's um, what's interesting about that word is it's used interchangeably 
between the soul and the body and and we 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 get these definitions of the animation of the body and the life yeah. of the body and and i think that's where the, de- the kind of defining what a soul is that's why it becomes so difficult well, I don't think it's true that they're interchangeable. Quite the contrary. There are places in the Old Testament that refer to a dead nephesh, right. meaning a dead body. So, so um, nephesh, there may be some occasions where it refers to soul, but all this is saying in Genesis 35, 18, and I suspect you'll find this if you look at pretty standard Old Testament commentaries by even conservative scholars, what you're going to find is that her soul was departing just means her life was departing. So, so... But even if you didn't want to agree with me there, even if you wanted to say, no, it's properly translated soul, that doesn't mean that the departing of the soul is defined as dying. That word for there can mean her soul was departing because she was dying. In other words, her dying is what caused her soul to depart. There's nothing here that identifies death with the soul departing. So I I stand by what I've said, that Matthew 10.28 and James 2.26 are just two indications that death is the cessation of life that is when it when the in the first death the body ceases to live it's what dies which is why matthew 10 28 and james 2 26 only use the language of death in regards to the body um but the soul continues to live and that if death meant separation then both body and soul would be described as dead but of course it's not the case at least not until the second death then body and soul (laughs) are described as dead see this is interesting because now we're getting into a little bit more depth um where we're talking about it is dude like that's what it's about man i love these conversations which my wife is texting me right now um because my dog is like super sick upstairs and i don't know what's going on but um but um but let's let's go a little bit further and then and then we might find a place to end here um but it, it seems like it seems like anytime there's a reference to killing that the reference to killing is is not a reference to death interchangeably but a reference to taking life um so taking life and if you're taking life we have to be able to define what um what that life is and we've already been talking about that a little bit with the nefesh and the old testament um and in the animation of the body so it it seems like you would you'd hold the same position as I do that the body would not continue to live without the nefesh or without the soul and unless you would say well the nefesh is the body or then the the nefesh is the life of the body but you're not willing to say that the life of the body is the soul within the body um, and one thing I would point out um, to kind of piggyback off that and I'm sure that you've heard this before maybe you've considered it uh, that that when we talk about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, uh, soul in reference to the body, and, and why I was saying that they could be and seem to be used interchangeably in the Old Testament is because, uh, <laughs> and, and this is where, where you would say, well, this is super traditional Christianity when we're talking about the, the spiritual circumcision in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament that um, with the spiritual circumcision, I would hold the position that um, that the soul is not connected to the body, which is why you can have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and have references to the new nature and the old nature and one nature not being able to sin and one nature being able to sin. And it gets a little more complicated, a little more deep that you can't really just make a, a, a drive-by statement like that. But but my point is, in the Old Testament, maybe there's maybe there is a connection that... Um, the soul and the body would be connected 
um, to the point that when you say the, um, the nefesh is in the ground, it's a reference to the body, but it's also a reference to the soul being in Abraham's bosom, um, you know, in connection with Luke chapter 16. But I don't know if you would <laughs> have much to respond there. I see you looking up like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not buying that. Like, I don't know. What would your take no, on that? I, I, would, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I think it's a fairly traditional view that, um, that, that the Old Testament, if only in... Uh, you know, a few ways and with very poetic language, nevertheless seems to um, envision human beings, uh, dead human beings being disembodied in shale. That seems to be a fairly traditional view, and I'm not, not disputing that here. All I'm saying is that um, even if we take, and, and just for the record, I was I was not looking up because I thought what you were saying well, didn't make sense or anything. It's just certain aspects of what you were saying seem to be to be um, uh, a little novel. Um, I've never heard, um, like, for example, you said, you know, that the soul becomes disconnected from the body in regeneration or something like that. I, I, I would be interested if, if you could point me at some point to some scholarship or, or commentaries or something like yeah. that, because I've never heard of that view. Yeah. But, but putting that aside, all I'm saying is that the, at most, both Old and New Testament say that death results in or entails or arguably is even caused by the separation of body and soul but what it is that dies in that separation is not the whole is not the soul it's the body as Matthew 10:28 and James 2:26 indicate so i'm perfectly fine for the sake of argument conceding to everything you're saying all i'm saying is that that doesn't mean that death means separation it just means that death is accompanied by separation or is caused by it or whatever, but what dies in that first death is still just the body. And so, biblically speaking, death means to cease uh, to live. It doesn't mean to separate. It doesn't. And even if it did, in fact, I'm going to take it a step further. Uh, a friend of mine, Joey Deer, whom I mentioned earlier, he's got a article at Rethinking Hell. If, if people Google Rethinking Hell, uh, whatever death means... The very first result will be whatever death means, it supports conditionalism. And in this article, Joey Deere argues that let's say for the sake of argument that death does in fact mean separation in the sense that when the body is separated from its source of life, namely the soul, it ceases to live. But what if both body and soul are separated from the quintessential source of life, which is God himself? Um, then body and soul would cease to live. And if people want to check out that article, they, yeah. they can read that article, that argument in more detail. But the point I'm getting at is no matter how you slice it, no matter how you define death, there's just no way, biblically anyway, to press it into service into saying um, that it in any way, shape, or form supports eternal torment. Yeah, and I think you would... You, you'd have to get there to that point, um, which I think that would be um, kind of a transition to the image of God, the Imago Dei, um, which I don't think we're going to well, get into tonight, but yeah, go ahead. No, we probably won't, but but what I will say just to um, maybe give a teaser, if we, you know, in the event that we are going to... Um, uh, in, in the event that we are going to discuss the image of God next time we uh, do this kind of thing, I'll just point listeners in advance to Genesis eight, uh, Genesis nine six, because in Genesis nine six, God says, "From uh, well, I'll back up to verse five. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed." For God made man in his own image. Yeah. Now, what this means is that you cannot 
there's simply no way to connect being created in the image of God to immortality and endless life because it's precisely being made in God's image that means that somebody who is created in God's image deserves death if he kills another of God's image bearers. So the image of God can't be pressed into service into meaning immortality or securing it. No. But as you said, when we dive into it in more detail, we could discuss it later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, <laughs> you, can, you can respond. I, I've still got time. So if you want to respond, you can, and I will, I'll let you have the last word on you, that topic for this time. You know what? I want to. I want to leave off um, with the okay. with the the reference to Larry Pettigrew there. And uh, there's one last quote, and then and then we can close it out because I need to see what's going on with my dog. My <laughs> wife is texting me yeah. like, not good. Okay. Um, okay. So. Let's see, and, and I, I'm not sure, let me see where I left off here. Okay, so uh, it seems like this might be the follow-up to Larry's position. Um, it's either it's either Pettigrew or Carson. I, I, I don't have my quotes um, in order here, so I might get them mixed up on who actually said this. But here it is. Okay, so the historic Christian position is that the soul derived from and, and, and is continually dependent on God because of the biblical understanding of the unity of the human being and because of the con- contemporary misunderstandings related to the phrase, quote-unquote, immortality of the soul. It admittedly might be better to speak of the person's continuity or existence after death. The, uh, to make matters more confusing, the meaning of immortality in the Bible largely depends on its context. The two Greek words being athanasia and aftharsia are often translated immortality, which you mentioned earlier. When uh, Athanasia refers to God in 1 Timothy 6.16, the immortality, uh, Paul seems to be referring to God's independent life or inerrant self-existence. When Ath- uh, Athanasia refers to the resurrection of the believer in 1 Corinthians 15.53 and 54, Paul is stressing that through Christ's resurrection, believers will be immune from death forever. Aftharsia in Romans 2.7 and in 1 Corinthians 15.42 and 2 Timothy 1.10 generally connotes immunity from decay and is typically linked with eternal life. And I'll wrap it up with this quote from Carson where Carson brings some clarity to the conclusion where he says, Doubtly some affirmations of human immortality are misleading since they tend to give the impression of intrinsic indestructibility. Uh, that not even God could reverse. It is better to think of the sovereign God through his triumphant son, upholding all things by his powerful word. In other words, however immortal we are, we live and move and have our being because God sanctions it, not because we have achieved some semi-independent status. And I think you would agree with that. Um, within That's su- exactly what I said, in yeah. fact. <laughs> yeah. um, and he says, within such uh, some such framework, I perceive no decisive argument against a properly articulated view of human immortality, and uh, much to commend the idea. It, it where is it? It, it, it appears, then, the conditionalist argument from conditional immortality should not be given much credence, though it may make for fruitful discussion concerning the biblical doctrine of humanity. It makes little difference in this debate over the duration of hell. In fact, it often just provides a smokescreen that masks the more important theological and exegetical matters. In any event, it is clear that the argument from conditional immortality cannot itself establish conditionalism. All right, so there's a 
a mouthful, what would your response be? And then we're, I'm going to wrap it up and go see how my dog's doing. <laughs> that sounds good. Right. Yeah, so I would just say that Carson did exactly the same thing one of those long quotes you read at the beginning of our conversation does, which is it assumes that the argument from conditional immortality trades on the notion of immortality of human beings in the resurrection being something that makes them independent from God or you know, it makes them intrinsically immortal or something like that. But as I already explained, that's not the argument from conditional immortality. The argument from conditional immortality is not that only God is intrinsically immortal until he gives intrinsic immortality to people. That's not the argument. The argument is that the Bible says only the saved will be made immortal at all. Uh, in terms of humanity. Obviously, God is immortal and angelic beings that are righteous and obedient are as well. But when it comes to humanity, immortal immortality, period, full stop, intrinsic or otherwise, uh, is something that is only said to be given to the saved in Scripture. So, to be with the utmost of respect for Dr. Carson, and I do have an utmost uh, respect for him, and, and that's why I quoted, uh, referred to his exegetical fallacies earlier, which is an excellent book, and I would encourage people to check it out. But with the utmost respect for him, it's actually he that is guilty of the smokescreen, because he's he's pretending as though, and he's too smart for this, so it is just a pretense. He's pretending that the, the argument from conditional immortality has something to do with intrinsic immortality versus non-intrinsic or something like that, and it just doesn't. The argument is simply that the Bible consistently, repeatedly, in no uncertain terms and in a variety of ways, communicates that only the saved, in terms of humanity, only the resurrected saved will be made immortal. Um, the lost will raise, be raised still mortal, just as we saw from Luke chapter 20, verses 35 and 36. Awesome, man. Hey, um, I do think this is going to be a good place to wrap it up, and maybe we can pick up the next time uh, with the image of God, or um, yeah. we'll talk and figure it out um, and see when we can make it happen. But anyways, I really do appreciate you coming on tonight. Uh, it was good. It was a really fun conversation. I think we did cover some surface stuff, and then we got into a little bit more of the depth of the conversation. Um, and certainly there's a lot deeper and a lot, a lot more to be had um, in this particular conversation. So um, it's been fun, man. Um, let's see if we can Same here. make it happen again. So, to, to, to quote one of my uh, favorite movies, um, which is Dead Poet Society, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Seriously, thank you for being such a great host. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate it. Um, we'll, we'll catch up with you and talk to you soon. So thanks, Chris. Sounds great. Thanks, Chris. All right. Okay, so guys, I'm going to go to my closing scene and just uh, give you an update on where we are at, what is coming up in the upcoming episodes, and uh, then we'll wrap it up. So on the 16th, Randy Krakowski and I were going to be debating uh, the origin of morality. Uh, Randy claims to have been a Christian. Um, he now is, uh, he lives in New York and um, claims to have lost his religion. He taught in Christianity and church for... Um, I think he said something like 17 years and has come to the conclusion that God does not exist because uh, he believes that the God of the Bible um, coerces humans to do what he wants them to do, especially when it comes to salvation and damnation. Um, but uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation because um, it's going to it's it's kind of a tender conversation, you know. Um, but. After that, we've got Reason and Theology is, is having me on as a guest for their podcast on the 20th, so go check that out. It's a, it's a Catholic podcast, to my understanding. I've listened to a few of their episodes, but it's, uh, it's going to be in reference to the debate that I had with Lewis Dyson on the doctrine of justification. So I do believe there's some pretty drastic differences between um, 
the Catholic view, in my view, um, in, in that conversation. So it should be interesting to follow up and dialogue again and, and uh, go a little deeper in that conversation as well. So um, check that out. Now, I'll give you a, a couple more. Stephen Avery is going to be doing some contra arguments for the First John 5, 7 uh, textual criticism argument that the heavenly witnesses or the comma Johanneum is actually, in fact, uh, authentic versus non-authentic. So he, that should be interesting, guys. Um, and we'll see. We've got a debate that I'm, uh, I've been talking with Matt Slick about that he would debate on uh, the Doctrine of Limited Atonement, but we'll see. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm not able to... <laughs> we'll see what happens there. But anyways, um, then we've got John, John Treat, and we're going to be talking about Calvinism a little deeper. Uh, but anyways, that's a, that's a wrap, guys. I appreciate you hanging in there. For whatever reason, the Facebook Live um, stream didn't stream tonight, so I'd, I've got to figure out what happened there. Uh, but we'll, we'll make sure and get the YouTube link um, onto Facebook so you can watch that. And before our next episode, we'll get it figured out so you can stream in live. Anyways, God bless, guys. I appreciate you hanging in there with us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.